0: This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled today to get to visit with Dr. David Bettinelli. David's got a couple of big roles. He's both the Executive Vice President and Physician-in-Chief at Northwell Health, uh, the largest health system in New York State, and one of the great health systems in the country. He's also the Vice Dean of the School of Medicine. Uh, I think it's the Barbara and David Zucker School of Medicine, but he'll tell me the exact title so I don't mess that up. We're gonna talk today to Dr. Bettinelli about shortages in physicians, medical education. Are there ways to, you know, it's so hard to get into medical school today. It's, there's not enough residency spots. Are there ways to address shortages? Are there ways to create more doctors and keep the quality where we need it to be? And and, and those kinds of topics today, Dr. Barton, can you take a moment to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you?
1: Yeah. Hi. So yeah, Dave Batonoli, I'm a, an internist, um, and uh as as Scott said, I work as a physician in Chief at Northwell and the Vice dean at the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine. I've had a long career in in academic medicine. you know the the issue about shortages of doctors it, it's an important one. You know, we've increased the number of u s medical school enrollees back in two thousand three. We began that um and there's there's a shortage for a lot of reasons, but More important to me than the shortage is the maldistribution of physicians in this country. Um, It's just been very, very difficult to get people into the either inner cities where there are not the same socioeconomic advantages to practices, for example, and into rural communities where there doesn't seem to be as much attraction with respect to uh, what's offered in urban environments.
0: And and how do we, You know, aside from flooding the zone with more doctors, creating more doctors, how do you deal with some of these disproportions? I mean, I know that every doctor and his or her spouse now wants to move to the major cities. Um, They not like a a generation ago where my parents generation or my generation moved to smaller cities after the military or other types of things. It seems like everything's moved more and more population and and physicians with it to the major cities, but but also there are still shortages in the inner city, but how do we adjust this misdistribution?
1: Yeah, listen, I I think there's a number of different ways we can do it. Um, One is there has not been, in in my opinion, and this I'm sure will be controversial, has been the appropriate changes to uh, physician reimbursement um, by specialties over the last uh, 25 to 30 years, the higher Specialty earning positions have simply increased and, you know, and the lower specialty earnings uh, have actually decreased. So um, that gap has just been accentuated. Um, that's got to change. Um, you know, uh, there's, there's just no question that you're always going to have marketplace um, pressures in, in order to do these things. And unfortunately, it's it's the direct patient care disciplines that have not kept pace. And when I say that, I mean things such as general medicine, family medicine, psychiatry, general surgery, behavioral health, psychiatry. um, And these are the areas where where most of the shortages um, with respect to access occur. When we talk about uh, the urban environments, um, we've done a very inadequate job of keeping pace, matching the workforce to the uh, diversity of our population, both in every aspect, doing a little better, obviously with respect to gender and women, but not where we need to be with respect to race and ethnicity. So there's just so many things that that need to be addressed we could go on, you know, literally for hours on this call.
0: But let me ask you a question. Is it a a zero-sum game between specialists and primary care physicians or direct care physicians, or is it more the kind of thing where... Rather than begrudging the specialist, there's just more money needed for primary care for internists and so forth. I mean, I, you know, my internist is magnificent, sees 25, 35 patients a day, works, is, works very, very hard, and, and doesn't make nearly the income that some of these specialists make. But it's not necessarily negative towards specialists. I have to go to school to the 32 or something like that.
1: But isn't it, does it have to be a zero sum game? Isn't it, don't we need more of both? Um, yeah, we do need more of both. But, you know, we, we do need to control, you know, the upper limit. And, you know, we, we need to make sure that this gap doesn't continue to widen at, at the at the pace that it is currently widening. Um, and, you know, this is not, uh, you know, to to your point, I'm not saying, you know, all the specialists are making too much money. But the, the rate of change at the specialists is just not keeping, uh, it's just not congruent with what the rate of change needs to be in the direct patient care disciplines. Um, you know, uh, medicine is becoming increasingly specialized. Um, we've got to figure out a better way than what we're currently doing, because, you know, it's it's the old story. This this is the system you have, in, and it should be no surprise uh, what it's yielding. Hey, hey, let me ask you a question on that. Right now, you know, we've got a, a, a couple of uh,
0: Kids or their kids and their uh, significant others applying to medical school, and you look at this and the debt ratio. People come out of medical school with two to four hundred thousand in debt. You know, and starting earning a living till they're thirty or so. I mean, they they make some money in residency, but in most places, especially if they're in, not enough to support themselves or or barely are. What is the is it necessary for medical school? And fellas so was supposed to take you into your early 30s, or could this be done in a better way? And 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 is there somewhere in between that would work? And, and what about medical debt? It, how alarming is that? That I mean, there's still more people applying to medical school than there are spots and residency spots, but it does seem like the debt yeah. and the length of medical school has become insane.
1: Yeah, so a couple of things on the debt side. So there are schools that are are looking to uh, become almost tuition free, certainly need free. Um, uh, you know, those who have a lot of money uh, expected to pay. Um, and uh, but and there are also there's a lot of movement on forgivable loans from government loans, which is a great thing. Um, but one of the issues that comes up is that uh, you know it's hard for people to get going and get started to have enough money for a down payment for a house so additional things could be done with respect to uh, loan forgiveness debt forgiveness uh, around housing and especially as you're looking to put people into certain geographies so um, that's the debt side the the length of the education um, there's been some schools that have gone from their sort of four-year traditional medical school curriculum to a three-year not a big fan of that, because i I don't think that that's where the growth has been. So medical schools have been four years for for a hundred years, but the graduate medical education side has almost doubled in length. and so i don't I don't think there's any question we could we could get a shorter time period on the graduate education length. So you know if you want to be uh, an electrophysiologist, let's say that's uh, four years of med school, three years of internal medicine residency, three years of cardiology, and then two years of electrophysiology. So there's just no question that that eight-year period to become uh, a highly specialized electrophysiologist can be done in less time than that. Uh,
0: I mean that's now- literally insane, isn't it? But but that's literally insane. I mean, I mean, I mean, you assume that the reality is, you tell me, you must learn like many of these things you learn 90% of what you got to know in a few years and you could be learning the rest of the 10% for the rest of your life what I mean, what is that? i mean you, you just pointed out something that i did not understand that, that medical school education so arguably stayed 3 to 4 years forever but it's these residencies that have exploded in length why is that why have those exploded in length
1: you know there's uh, there's not general agreement on how you can sort of shorten some of those uh, specialty areas that will require uh, quite a bit. Um, There's also a disincentive built in and that these are residency positions that are are funded. And so people are paying for them to stay as long as they are. Um, There are some specialties that are purposefully trying to limit the number of specialists in their area. Um, That has to do with uh, competition and and, uh, financial advantages. Um it doesn't make a lot of sense the other but but what you're getting at, I think is where we're going to go it'll It'll take some time, and there's a movement in medical education um, to look at what we're calling time variable competency because um, even if it does take eight years to get there, well, maybe it takes eight years for somebody, maybe it takes four years for somebody. We don't really look at this critically by evidence to say um Somebody might only need four or five years. Somebody needs six years. Somebody needs seven years, et cetera. Um, but that's all about how do you gather the evidence we need in order to uh, make those decisions. I
0: mean, fascinating, right? I mean, literally fascinating that that some of these things have taken – have grown to – you know, you know uh, 30 years ago of my friend who was becoming a neurosurgeon told me he wasn't going to be out of school until 33, 34, and I thought that was insane. But that's become – the, the norm for so many of these specialties, and that's where when you talk about the comp, I, I sort of think maybe it shouldn't be a zero-sum game because people have limited lifespans to earn their livings if they're not getting out of their specialties and starting to work until they 32, 33, or some, some number like that. But what a, what a fascinating subject on how graduate education has become longer. And also, some of these are like traditional guilds where they've almost you know artificially put limits on making doctors when we know we need more doctors i mean you know if you need a specialist today in so many places let alone a primary care doctor you you need access for somebody to get to the right person i mean it's 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 almost i can't even imagine where somebody who's not connected to the healthcare system how challenging it is to get a specialist in some places
1: well there's another thing going on too which is you know people see uh because they're either uh uh, burdened with debt or otherwise, that they uh, are competing for the high-specialty jobs that uh, where they will make more money, and, and so you've got, uh, in some ways, a little bit of a brain drain on um, somebody who wants to become a, a highly specialized dermatologist, for example, extraordinarily competitive, um, when I think there's general agreement that that's not as hard for uh, uh, be a competency as becoming a world-class general internist or general surgeon.
0: I mean, it's really true, isn't it? And you, it's so unpopular to say those things, but we know there's so much demand for the dermatology residency spots in part because it's become people make a great living and they've got a normal balance of life, not because it's right. it, for, for, for very you know socioeconomic reasons. What a fascinating system. And, and I guess, how do you you know, how do you create more graduate medical education spots? Is that part of the problem? You need more graduate medical, medical edu- education spots? I just think that's part of why I constantly hear that. we have got a record number of people that didn't
1: match this year and stuff like that.
0: But it sounds like that's only part of the problem. Any thoughts on that? On and-
1: the well, that's GME been a problem up. since the since the Balanced Budget Act of '97, um, where were they capped the Medicare spending on that. But you know, there there could be things that are done in this, at, at the same time. So you could argue to loosen up the Medicare spending if, in fact, you would simultaneously decrease the amount of time people spend in those residencies. Because if you just loosen up one, it'll it'll lead to a, an extraordinary increase in the Medicare expenditure. But in fact, if you say, you know, for every two that I open, I will decrease one year of something else, then, you know, you really have already cut that expenditure in half. So um, that's That's a fascinating perspective, because there's a lot of ways to solve
0: this. That's a fascinating perspective, because i never heard somebody talk about it like you've talked about it, and it's brilliant and helpful, because you could, quite frankly, get the same number of people through residencies if we cut residencies on average by six months, as an example.
1: Right. Yeah, you know, again, uh, there is uh, what people don't like to talk too much about as well is there's a very, there's, there's not a lot of alignment um, throughout the graduate education enterprise. You have the, um, you know, the ACGME, you have the American Board of Medical Specialties, you have the AAMC. There isn't, uh, there, there's just not general agreement. And it, it, a lot of work needs to be done. Part of it, uh, I think, could be solved on this time variable competency issue if we can get the evidence that we need. To say somebody is uh, is competent to do this kind of work, which is really what happens after residency. Uh, you know, we recredential people year after year after year for 50 years, um, and it's based on their performance while in practice. And, and let me ask you a question about that, because
0: in today's world, where that type of hardcore merit-based testing has come out of favor. Don't you think that that is a, even though it makes tremendous sense that you do competency-based testing to get people through their residencies, that that would become a huge, um, oh, political firestorm just to, to move in that direction? Isn't it easier to take a simpler answer than that, even though that makes tremendous sense?
1: Yeah, no, there's there's uh, a lot of resistance to, you know, all of that kind of testing moving forward, mostly because, um it's a very. These tests are very, very broad-based, and the reality is that uh, let's take a hundred questions on that test. The, the the average physician probably only deals with ten of those questions. Um, so you will then say, "Oh well, you know, you're not competent," but you weren't going to do that anyway. It's like uh, uh, it, it's it's quite it's quite complicated. But all the more reason why you should be you should be assessed and credentialed and evaluated on on the work that you do, not what uh, somebody says that you are, you know, licensed to do or, or, or otherwise.
0: So, so true. Uh, Dr. Bertinelli, one more question for you. It's just a fascinating discussion. I appreciate your thoughts on it. It's so insightful. I've learned a lot in a short period of time. Thank you. Talk to me about what you are most focused and excited about for 2022. What are your big priorities?
1: Um, you know, the, the, the one thing that we, Need to do more than anything else in uh, in medicine is to provide a greater sense of connectedness for patients. Some people call this access. I I I I try to look at it beyond access. It's uh, a patient needs to know that they're cared for and they can get care um, at the drop of a hat when they need it. Not on some sort of regularly scheduled basis, or um, you know, within 24 hours. Uh, again, it's it's the digital transformation, the virtual care, and you know what banking has been able to do is what medicine has to do, right? I mean, you know, everybody back in the old days, it's you know, get your paycheck, go to the bank, deposit it, take some money out, you know, lunch lines, all sorts of crazy stuff, and, and look how far that digitization of of that industry has helped us Um, if we could do that in medicine we can solve some of these problems for example the virtual care for the rural environment seeing the top-notch specialists have the virtual visit yes they're not perfect but on that visit somebody could determine "Mm, you know you actually really have to be seen in person or you know what six weeks is going to be an okay amount of time or you don't need that at all um I think that the connectedness through what's coming in virtual care, and I don't mean that what we have today. What we have today is no different than us carrying around the the brick that we called the cell phone in the late 80s. Um, It's going to be extraordinary the amount of connectedness that we're going to be able to afford to patients so that we can manage their illness, chronic disease, and access um, better than we're doing now. So I'm very excited about it. It's going to be Revolutionary.
0: Dr. Battinelli, always a pleasure to visit with you. I, I, I feel like I learned so much talking to you. It's an amazing role you have as physician in chief of Northwell, largest health system, one of the great health systems in the country, the largest health system in the New York and Tri State region, uh, and also vice dean of the medical school. Just a, 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 an amazing perspective. Uh, the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine. Uh,
1: David, thank you so much for joining us today. What a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Scott. Be well.